0: All right, let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much again for another day to be alive here, worshiping you, studying your word together in unity. We ask, Father, that you uh, bless this time together in your word. Help us to forget about the details of life. Help us to remember that you're the reason we're here right now and even still alive, and that we're here to learn your plan for the remainder of our lives. We ask that your Spirit guide us and teach us this evening, Father, help us understand spiritual things that we otherwise have no way of understanding. We ask all these things based on the merits of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and it's by the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. What an encouraging title and promise that is, actually, from the Word of God. And uh, as came out on Sunday, I hope you're all enjoying the cohesive work of the Spirit, bringing so many things together seamlessly for us. Um, I was thinking, as I was preparing, you know, for the lesson tonight, isn't it great when the Spirit makes it obvious to us what He's emphasizing? there's no guesswork, there's no, you know, confusion in the lessons, you know, in fact we get a good amount of repetition coming at at it from different angles, but isn't it wonderful that God makes it so obvious to us, and and our job is to be humble enough to keep receiving, keep receiving, ask Him what's the point of this, why are we going over this from a different angle now, etc., etc., right, but it's obvious, and thank God this is not a guessing game, The Holy Spirit's pretty direct with us. For example, uh, obedience being the fruit of a believer, but also the way that God can release so many blessings to us, conditional blessings. So these things are nice and crystal clear and straightforward for us. And at the same time, God keeps reminding us of his love as we go on this journey. He keeps inserting his love. He's like, don't forget (laughs) Where, where this comes from and, and how you have to stay in the sphere of my love. Don't forget, like, as you study the details, as you study different topics even, they're, they're surrounding love, which has to always stay in the center, including in our gospel presentations, right? So all these things uh, in the vein of simplicity, if you think about it, and purity of devotion to Christ. Hopefully you remember that series a little while ago. In view of simplicity and how God designed His plan for all of us to see, for all of us to be able to see, God's plan and God's Word wasn't given to some elite group. In fact, it was given to the least of us. It was given to the least educated, the least prosperous, uh, whatever, right? It was designed that way. And as came out on Sunday, what hit our pastor last week from the lessons is that God has made salvation something that even a child can understand. How wonderful is that? You know, there's there's certain things that distinguish Christianity from any other religion in the world. Um, We know we have the truth of the Word of God, that's one. This is another one on the board. Every other religion, you know, caters to or promotes the quote-unquote elite or those who can run the race faster or better or, you know, in their flesh. And it's based on a works program. Christianity is the opposite. It's based on grace and it's made understandable to a child even. Even a child, and maybe especially a child, knows what it means to repent and believe in his Father. Think about salvation. On the board, that's really what we're talking about, right? Even a child can understand God's salvation. Even a child, maybe even especially a child, knows what it means to repent and believe in his Father. The key word is knows. He understands the simplicity of of the desired relationship between a father and son. He understands it. It's like within him. But it's actually beyond words, even though it is understood. This came out on Sunday. And I was actually trying to explain this this morning as I was reviewing and, you know, prepping my notes. And I was trying to explain this and I couldn't. I was picturing, you know, the father-son relationship and the the understanding between the two parties. And I couldn't articulate what I was picturing, what I was thinking. So it's a known thing, even though it's hard to explain at times. And God has made salvation like this for even children to understand, even though they might not be able to articulate it. Deep down, even a little child knows what his father desires of him, because that's how he's been designed by God. Just think about that. Deep down, even a little child knows in his heart what his father desires of him, because that's the way God designed it. Go again to Luke 18 verse 15. Luke 18:15. What a wonderful truth. Our God is not a God of confusion. And the simpler the better in a lot of ways. Luke 18, 15. And they were bringing even their babies to Him so that He would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying... Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. How does a child receive? How does a child receive anything? Is it not by a simple trust? A pure trust? But also one of the outstanding qualities of a little child is their humility. Again, verse 18, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. One of the outstanding qualities of a little child is their humility. They are willing to listen and willing to be taught. I think of our own beautiful prep school kids. Uh, the prep school teachers have such a privilege. Um, you know, they're never perfect, right? But they are so open and humble and ready to hear what you have to say about the Lord. There's nothing like that humility, because as they get older, right? as we, any, all of us got older, arrogance creeps in, "I know better, I know enough now," etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. That's not the case with little children. We've all heard the expression that children are like a sponge. They soak up whatever they're given. Why? The only way that's true, the only way that's who they are is because they're humble. Because they're willing. Only arrogance gets in the way of learning. So, that childlike humility is another indication of what is present in someone who becomes saved. That's what God is waiting for for man to choose a platter of humility instead of his regular platter of arrogance. Hope you remember that from last week, originally from Pastor's blog quite a while ago. God is waiting for man to choose a platter of humility instead of his regular platter of arrogance. A man can choose his platter of arrogance every day, even for his whole life. And God is patiently waiting, lovingly waiting, for him to accept that platter of humility one day. It's interesting that Jesus' statement about receiving him like a child comes on the coattails of a recently emphasized parable that stresses humility and salvation. Uh, Go back to verse 9, Luke 18. And I don't know about you, but I never get tired of this parable. It has so many little lessons within it and has been very important to our themes the last few years. Luke 18, 9, and he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. We might say this tax collector and the children have a lot in common and that is humility before the Lord receiving Him that way it's the only way to receive Him you won't truly receive Him if you're arrogant in your own abilities or unwilling to turn to Him admit even you need a Savior somebody won't receive Him that way they might use the right words It's the only way that God accepts the humble heart. And that's why in Pastor Collins' definition of the gospel on the website, for example, and even in our salvation pamphlets, he refers to someone turning to Christ with humble, repentant faith. That's what saving faith looks like, humble, repentant faith, which a child has or which that wise tax collector has. had in that parable so how can we deny the simplicity of the picture painted for us in that passage for example two pictures painted for us how can we deny the simplicity of that again one of the keys pastor took from last week's lesson is on the board God has made salvation something that even a child can understand and when our pastor picks something out from a week's worth of lessons we should pay attention to that Because part of his spiritual gift is submitting to the Spirit and listening to what the Lord wants him to emphasize for us in the now. How many things are there that could have been taught on Sunday? Possibly infinite? And that's one of the main points that came out from the Spirit. If you have a pastor doing his job, which thank God we do, he's listening for the Spirit's emphasis. In other words, what do we need to hear right now? And how do we need to hear it? That's what popped out on the board. So don't take this for granted. Regarding the faith of a child, God is enabling all of us to see the truth. As Pastor said on Sunday, Like a child, a person may not be able to fully articulate a truth in words, but they know it to be true. We're talking about supernatural spiritual things here. How do they know it to be true? They just know. Because God gave us faculties. How about the conscience? Maybe that's how we know. How about the heart? How about the soul? we're going to start trying to describe supernatural things and how they work together. The fact is, they know it to be true. It's so simple, it's hard to actually put into words. Even a child can tell when something is not right, and he may not be able to explain it, but he knows. And consider this. Why does a small child have the faculties to not only notice when things aren't right, but he also calls them out because there's this discomfort in his soul. Where does that come from, right? It's kind of like where does right and wrong come from, right? Where do our morals come from? To atheists that say we just, you know, are just like animals or something. Where do your morals come from? Where does this inner belief come from that something is right and something is wrong? God provided and built us this way by grace. One's soul is disturbed by the grace of God and given the ability to notice discrepancies. Just like Jesus said, you'll know a tree of faith by its fruit, whether it's good or bad. You'll be able to recognize that tree, where it's from, what quality it it is or it has. And uh, if you should listen to it, or follow it. You'll be able to see bad fruit, for example, so that you're not deceived by falsehood. That's the original meaning of that passage in Matthew 7. So turn to Romans 1.18. Let's just pad this thought that came out on Sunday. The Lord provides in every way, shape, and form. And not just in our physical needs, but in our soulish needs, in our faculties, like the conscience. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. So if you ever have doubts, you're witnessing to someone, right? Maybe it's it's an atheist. I don't know. But you're witnessing to someone and they say that, that they don't know any better. Or they give the excuse that they don't know God. You need to be confident in the Word of God and what it says here in verse 19. Now, they may be in denial, but deep down they know. And you might share that with them in love. Verse 19, that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. How do you explain that? You, maybe you can't, but it's understood. It is in them so that they are without excuse. That's how understood it is by the way, that they are without excuse. There's not even one good excuse to deny your Creator. So God wants us to discern what's going on around us and to not be deceived by pretenders. On the board, a couple other key points that Pastor reviewed regarding the visible results of saving faith We cannot see the roots of a tree of faith just as we can't see someone's heart. But we can see the fruit of a tree of faith, which are the visible results or proofs in a believer's life. And the visible results of saving faith are signs that a person has surrendered in faith to Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. They've been born again. There are signs to this. There's a changed heart. So whether modern day Christianity agrees with it or not, the word of God is clear that there will be fruitful signs in the life of those that are saved. Some churches might even call it being legalistic, but they're not honestly reading the Bible in context if they're going to disagree with that truth. And this is how we know them, by their fruit. This is how we can examine ourselves as well and examine our own faith, but also recognize those that are of the flock or who might be deceived or who might even be a wolf in sheep's clothing. What about those that go to church or claim to believe in God but are without any fruit in their lives, any good fruit in their lives? The Word says they are deceived in their own lip service. And they haven't turned to Christ alone in their hearts to be saved. That's what the Word says. For for example, the believer has fear of the Lord. We saw many scriptures about that. The believer has fear of the Lord. So if you meet someone that has no fear of the Lord and really doesn't care what they do and they don't care by their lifestyle they don't care what that God is over them yet they claim to be a believer or they go to a church chances are as the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, 120 we saw this on Sunday in the Amplified Classic my flesh trembles and shudders for fear and, rever- and reverential worship worshipful awe of you and I am afraid and in dread of your judgments there's a person that has come to terms with who the Lord is and that the Lord is their master properly the master I mean how can you how can you deny that attitude on the board so that's what it looks like when someone repents and believes in the Lord at least to some degree not perfectly perfectly but at least to some degree. The believer is able to say in his heart, you, Lord, are just awesome. I can't fathom you. I bow down before you. That's that's what a believer is able to say in his heart, despite the flesh still being around. Turn again to 2 Corinthians 7.1. 2 Corinthians 7.1. We're kind of reviewing what Pastor reviewed on Sunday. But I know you're a very patient church, and you love repetition, so you should be very happy this evening. Hmm. Hey, you know what, the, most, the more mature we get in the Lord, the, the simpler we probably want it, you know, or appreciate it, because it's not supposed to be complicated. Second Corinthians 7, 1, therefore, having these promises, beloved... Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We see we believers are to properly and rightly fear God. But what came out on Sunday is comments about the word perfecting. So on the board, Pastor mentioned you cannot perfect something that doesn't exist, the thing must first exist. For this action verb to have any real meaning to it. For example, how do I perfect writing my name if I don't first know how to write? You have to have some faculty first to perfect it, whatever it is. If someone is going to perfect holiness in the fear of God, they have to have a portion of holiness to start with. That was the point on Sunday. And that's what a believer has. And that means they must be saved because the Bible says unbelievers have no holiness whatsoever without Christ. And notice here in this verse again, it says, Beloved. Therefore, having these promises, Beloved. So these are believers. These are people in Christ that have been made holy by God. And what do we call that? What do we call being made holy by God? Anybody? Bueller, sanctification, yep, sanctification, right? So they have sanctification. And the thing I couldn't not think about on Sunday was uh, 1 Corinthians 1. So on the board, the starting point for perfecting holiness. Believers, the beloved, have had positional sanctification accomplished for them through faith in Christ. In other words, they've been made holy. They possess it, they've got it, they've got Christ in them. So they have something to now uh, perfect throughout life. First Corinthians one verse two and verse thirty and second Corinthians seven one. So go to first Corinthians one. Let's just see this for our edification. Again, believers, the beloved have had positional sanctification accomplished for them through faith in Christ. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.1 Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord, and ours. You can see what a believer looks like, too, in that description. But they have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. They've been given a starting place of holiness by God. That's Christ's righteousness placed in you at the moment of salvation. So now you have something wonderful and even perfect in its own right to work with. But now, will we experience it? Will we grow in it and learn it and live in it to bring God glory? That's where the perfecting holiness comes in. But believers are made holy by the blood of Christ. Amen? So that's what we have. That's what we possess, including the Corinthians. Look at verse 30, 1 Corinthians one thirty. But by his doing, notice, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. One of the things accomplished for the believer by his doing is sanctification. Holiness. Being set apart. And these verses are said about a church filled with new believers that kept falling in what we might call basic areas. They had basic areas of failure and sin that, you know, you expect new believers to have. What is said about them? That they have been sanctified. So on the board, the starting point for perfecting holiness. By placing their trust in Christ, the Corinthians became saved and therefore sanctified by God or made holy. And that's the holiness all believers have to start with by the grace of God. And we all have now the opportunity to perfect it, to work it out, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We have the privilege and the opportunity to work it out in our lives. That's why God leaves us here. One of the reasons... To bring Him glory in that way, to live a holy life, set apart from the world for His purposes. And then also to live in the Great Commission. But it doesn't, you know, it's not complicated. Live it out. Perfect holiness in the what? Fear of God. Because that's what keeps us humble and leads us into greater and greater holiness. I mean, when you get to heaven, how awesome will it be to say that, you know, by the end of your life, your life was totally set apart for God? By the end of your life on earth, your life was totally set apart for Him. You still have to live in the world, right? But you weren't of the world. And every area of your life, one by one, got knocked off in the self life and was set apart for Him. That's what what God was trying to do for us. That's why you're still alive. Right? And he might give you many years, maybe more than you want. But he's like, you know what? I'm taking you to this awesome place, and I'm going to complete the good work in you. And I want you to experience holiness, which means to be set apart, like pure, right? For his purposes, not for our own. So when we get to heaven, we'll have no regrets whatsoever. And that's why we got to stay humble and stay fearful of the Lord properly and watch Him work out these things in us. He has to do it. I mean, God knows. How many times do you say in a day, you know, God, I can't do it, right? Help me with this. I can't do it. And that's perfect. That's what He wants. So, again, Paul says it's the proper fear of God that leads us into greater and greater holiness, to being set apart for His glory in a greater and greater way in our experience. And there's our experiential sanctification. A secondary implication of this verse in 2 Corinthians 7.1 was brought out on Sunday as well and that is that a person who abides in the fear of God can only be a true believer. It's kinda, it's like synonymous Right, If you're a believer, you will have some fear of God, obviously. If you have fear of God, if you truly do, you're a believer. Only a believer has this type of fear and respect for the Lord. So here's what we heard on this last Sunday. Reverence bows down in awe. It does not take God lightly or get casually familiar with Him. Reverence includes a healthy fear, which accompanied all those Whoever saw God. This attitude is present in the hearts of true believers. And then what came out on Sunday, this Sunday, from Pastor, was this kind of fear bears immediate, lasting, identifiable fruit. There's evidence in the life. It's evident in one's life to some degree, in some way. And this immediate, lasting, identifiable fruit also includes obedience to some degree. God produces it in the heart of his children. When he he shows them the light and people stop resisting and they surrender to the Lord and admit they need a Savior, God produces this in the heart of his children. The obedience, the fear, the respect, just even the awareness of who God is and how awesome he is and how we are accountable to him. Notice on the board, it says a reverence includes a healthy fear which accompanied all those who ever saw God. And it came out last week that all these things, the visible signs, the visible results of saving faith, they accompany saving faith, right? They go with it, right? Well, in my Bible reading, I finally came across a verse that said it so nicely, what we've been trying to say for a long time now. Of course, love how God humbles us. Hebrews 6, 9, and 10 on the board. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. These things, these evidences, and these fruits accompany salvation. It's part of the package. It's kind of like the whole, you know, reason for being saved. They accompany salvation. For example, your work and, and, and the love. So these are wonderful reminders for each of us personally to consider the good results in our own lives and hearts the things that God has changed in us and the things also that God is changing right now. But there are definite things that accompany salvation, definite good things. And Pastor made a key point on Sunday to give us the right perspective when we're faced with other people and considering their lives and their faith because that's the test, let's face it, for all of us. And I was talking to, uh, I think it was Michael about this, at some point how when we finally learn something and we finally get it when someone we see doesn't get it we like start judging them like why don't you get it what's your problem don't we what is wrong with us we're so impatient and we're so i don't arrogant i guess what is wrong with us why do we do that you yesterday literally yesterday you didn't see it and the spirit showed it to you last you know last night or whatever and then tomorrow you see someone that's failing in that area and you judge them like crazy. Totally insane. <laughs> that's the flesh. But this is a test. Whenever we're faced with considering the lives of others, others that claim to be a believer. You know, I'll see, I'll see a believer today or so, you know, whatever, a so-called believer living a certain way. But if I'm honest and I, and I examine myself, I live that way too at one point even claiming to be a believer. So who am I judging? Why am I judging? Why do I so quickly forget where I came from? So anyway, this is a test. And when you see the lives of other believers, how are we to look at that? How are we to uh, discern their situation? So this came out on Sunday. Instead of judging, which clearly is not the right thing to do, Regarding the lives of others, let's use our God given judgment or discernment for the sake of motivation. Let's use it for the sake of motivation. Allow it to be a reason to do good things in their life or for them or towards them. When we see something's off, like you just know something's off in somebody's life, don't judge use that as motivation to reach out to them and maybe even love them even more, to be available to them even more, maybe to be able to lead them to repentance like Jesus did in Luke 5.32. Use it as motivation. It's It's not meant to be, it's not giving you the rod in your hand. It's not God saying, okay, you see it? You see it? Okay, go take care of that for me. That's not what it's meant for. God gives us discernment so that we can act upon it in love. For the sake of motivation, we should use it. Approaching somebody in love. Maybe paying them more attention instead of assuming they were saved. Maybe we should pay them more attention and guide them. Try to guide them if they're willing to the truth that sets them free. It's God's work, but we can, we can get our hands in there and get, get our hands dirty, right? By faith, we can do that thing. So use it as motivation. God has provided the signs of faith so that we're not caught unaware also. On the board, again, these are signs that even a child can recognize, and it's not supposed to be difficult to see. It's as simple as good or bad fruit on a tree. Thank God it's that simple. And these things accompany salvation. And this speaks to our Lord's seamlessness, again, on the board. His perfect person is a picture of the seamlessness of his salvation and sanctification. As the Spirit's been showing us, they go together seamlessly without problems. The only problem is is your flesh getting in the way but these two things go together. In other words, practically speaking, there's no discrepancy or um, inconsistency in his gospel and the results that come from it. They fit together seamlessly. This is the essence of the gospel, that God actually changes men who turn to Christ in humility. Doesn't that make sense? Like, isn't that why he... (laughs) you know saves you. He's like I want to change you. I want to I'm going to make you new. I'm going to take you in. I'm going to adopt you. Even though there's no merits whatsoever on your behalf. That's what I'm going to do for you through Christ. And how does that not change somebody? How does the power of God's grace not change somebody? We've been through this before. So switching gears, It came up very clearly on Sunday. The Bible teaches us that God will not save an unrepentant person. To me and my own soul, this has become more and more clear. An unwillingness to repent is like a blockade to salvation, Pastor mentioned on Sunday. And the same with sanctification, therefore, because they're, you know, can't have one without the other. So I think of two scriptures that illustrate. Man's arrogance, staying in the way of receiving God's grace. That's really the only reason someone doesn't come to saving faith in Christ, is their arrogance and choosing to, to, you know, keep a hand up towards God's salvation, to not do it his way, to do it your own way. So I want to read two passages in context that illustrate this. So go to Romans 2, verse 5. Romans 2, verse 5. Again, the Bible teaches us that God will not save an unrepentant person. Romans 2, 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. Notice how deeds here are an immediate and true evidence of where someone's heart is. Do you see that? It almost seems out of place. It almost seems too abrupt. Maybe that's because of, you know, past learning. But because of your stubborn, unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the, you know, day of judgment, Judgment of God was going to render to each person according to their deeds. They go hand in hand. The unrepentant heart produces certain unrighteous deeds. The repentant heart, the one who turns to Christ in humility, is going to produce certain good deeds. Look at verse 7. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. There's the description of the believer who has chosen not to stay stubborn and unrepentant. To those who by perseverance in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There's the unbeliever. Is a description of the unbeliever. Unwilling to admit he needs the grace of God to save him. What's the fruit? Stubborn, unrepentant heart. Selfishly ambitious and don't obey the truth. They go hand in hand. What a picture of the believer versus the unbeliever. And these pictures of their faith or lack thereof are in full color because of their deeds. How will you know them? By their fruit. Their faith or lack thereof is in full color because of their deeds. It's one seamless thing again. We just have to keep reading our Bibles in context and honestly ask ourselves, with the faith of a child, as we read passages like this in context... What is the Word of God saying? What is there? Faith of a child, what is there when you read that passage? What conclusion do you have to come to unless you want to chop it up in little pieces and stop, you know, halfway through? Go to Romans 10, verse 1. One other passage that, that reminds me of this, that God's not going to save an unrepentant person. And it's man's arrogance that stays in the way of receiving God's grace. Romans 10.1 Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. So notice we're talking about salvation for those that haven't believed yet, right? My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God but not in accordance with knowledge. So these unbelievers have a zeal for God. Verse 3, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. They wanted to hold on to their own righteousness. They were arrogant. Like we all were at one point. Because we all have a little religion in us. But this is a description of an unbeliever. What's the problem? In verse 3, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They were unwilling to admit. They needed his help. And they thought their righteousness was good enough. Like those that cling to the law. So on the board, the root of the problem for an unbeliever is an unrepentant heart. That's the blockade. That's the big blockade. That's the problem. This is the person that chooses to remain in rejection of the sovereignty of the one who created them. I don't want to submit. I refuse to subject myself to his righteousness. Forsaking my own. I'm not going to forsake my own. It's pretty good, it's better than most. It's what people say in their hearts. Even though they might not say that with their words. And in the absence of the proper fear of God, people choose to remain in their arrogance. So as evangelists, we go out there that we've got to realize that's the problem. And we have to lovingly approach them because, you know, what does arrogance do? It gets defensive. We have to lovingly approach them and explain to them and pray. Ask for openings, ask for guidance because If it's not done in love, their arrogance just gets stronger, right? We all know that, right? Only God can get their attention, truly. But we are willing to get our hands dirty, hopefully, to get in there and know that the love of God can conquer anything in the way. So changing gears as we begin to close. I'm not going to be able to get through everything today, unfortunately, but it's okay. Um, one thing that gets in the way of salvation of some is being deceived regarding the deity of Christ. And I think this is bigger than we think, than we realize it is. On the board, deity is part of who Christ is, but Satan would love people to believe in a counterfeit Jesus who is less than God himself, as seen in many religions today. Muslims, Hindus, Jehovah's Witnesses, even the Jews, right? They don't believe Jesus is God. They believe He's a prophet, but not the Messiah. Matthew 16, 13 through 17, 2 Corinthians 11, 4. This is a major scheme of the devil. And we're told in Ephesians 6 to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. This is one of them. So, don't give in to people that are wishy-washy about who Jesus is. You know what I mean? You ever have someone make a passing comment about Jesus? Like they accept him, but you could tell they don't realize he's the Lord, right, in the flesh. You just can tell by their words or even their expression. So don't allow them to get away with that. And I don't mean go attack them, all right? Don't allow allow them to walk away with that false message in their soul that they've been holding on to. You know, you might stop them out of love, in love, and stick up for the Lord. And say, you know, just so you know, this is who he really is. It's up to you. You know, it's your, your belief. It's up to you to accept that or not. But this is what the Bible says he really is, who he really is. Don't let them stay deceived. Because if they stay in that, they're believing in another Jesus and another gospel and they're going to have maybe a false sense of security even about salvation. So at least be willing to plant that seed for them in their souls. How's that? Even if it's a little awkward or uncomfortable, even if you have to go out of your way and they might not be, you know, ready for a conversation about the Lord, I don't know, but... Just plant that seed for them. Let them shun you. Let them shun you. They persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Give them the truth, let them shun you, and let that seed be planted in their soul for the rest of their life so God, the Holy Spirit, can use it, right? That's our privilege. Like Jesus asked in Matthew 16, who do you say that I am? Obviously, it's a big issue, even with the Lord. Who do you say that I am? Like on the board in Second Peter 1.1, 1, 1, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Crystal clear in many verses. If you're not sure about that, go back to uh, last Thursday's lesson to review the deity of Christ. So it's when we step back and begin to think about all that God has done for us that we should be overcome with a sense of love and appreciation. And even even with the simplicity and, and the seamlessness of how God's bringing everything together for us, we should be overcome with a sense of love and appreciation. And as Pastor said on Sunday on the board, love and appreciation are the whole point. <laughs> Isn't it? What's God after? Our hearts. Our hearts. Remember the Greek word for devotion? What was it? Um, eager... Uh, it was good (laughs) go look it up there's your homework that Greek word for devotion it it had eagerness in it a sense of eagerness in following somebody God looks for our heart right he wants our heart he doesn't want our lip service and our, our going through the motions love and appreciation are the whole point Don't dismiss that on the board as being too simple because you're going to miss it. You're going to miss how simple and beautiful it's supposed to be and how much peace we're supposed to get from that. All this learning, right? Why do we study his word? Why do you drive to class after a long day of work? Why do you continue to learn about him and his salvation? Why do you read your own Bible? In other words, on the board, why do you pursue him? Why do you still pursue him if you're already saved? To live a life of love and appreciation, which results in glory to God and peace for you. That's the kind of life God wants us to be able to walk in and enjoy. To live a life of love and appreciation, and that results in glory to God and peace for you. What's our title in this series? Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. God wants us so badly to live in his peace, to enjoy his peace and the freedom that he purchased for us. He wants us, that's what his hope is as a father, a good father is for us all. And it comes back to believing the love God has for us. So one day soon enough, we're all going to be in heaven with perfect love. But the key word there is soon enough. We shouldn't be despairing about life or looking toward that day in heaven in the sense that um, we can't live our lives out for him. You know, we give up in a sense that that's not the right way. We're going to be in heaven before you know it. But if we're still here, we have a very unique opportunity to live in the love and the peace that he wants us to live in. He wants us to, every day, fix our hope completely on him. And his perfect love. That's the goal right. Remember he's setting us apart. He's perfecting holiness in us right. To one day when we can honestly say. That maybe. God willing every area of our life. Is set apart for him. Not perfectly but as a lifestyle. And brings him tremendous glory. Right in the face of the devil. That's what should get us through each day uh, with joy and hope, focusing on His perfect love. So let's close with uh, a passage. I think we'll only have one time to read this one. In 1 Peter 1, 13. And I just want you to see, we're going to read this in passage. I want you to see how the, the Spirit is so brilliant at bringing all these things together for us. Because I started, I just went to verse 13. Uh, I think it was this morning. That's the verse I wanted to share with you. And then as I read the next verse and the next verse and the next verse, I couldn't stop reading because it literally brought together, like, as you're going to see, four or five things that we've been talking about. So let's just enjoy His Majesty. 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves, also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown... Before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. Nice way to end. Only God can bring it all together like that. It's just, I'd say embarrassing, but that's not the right word. But it's great how he just sums everything up that we've been saying in many, many lessons in one or two passages. So hopefully you can go home and read that for yourselves again just to see how he's orchestrating it in our souls. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing word, your amazing grace toward us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who guides all these things and orchestrates them in our souls so that we can see the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. We ask, Father, that you help us to just be humble, continue to be humble before you and your mighty word and your mighty spirit. We know we're nothing without you. We're so grateful that you're gracious and loving and that you're faithful, even when we're faithless. Help us to just be humble one day at a time, Father, and soak in with the faith of a child all you have plan for us one day at a time we ask these things in christ's precious name by the power of your spirit we pray amen thank you